Bienvenidos and welcome to the Voces Podcast. My name is Ana Lucia Lopez Reboredo, and I am your host. Today's guest is Alexandra Corwin. Alexandra is a native Chicagoan rooted in her Jewish, Ashkenazi, Peruvian, and Quechua heritages. A graduate of DePaul University and Harvard University's Graduate School of Education, where she also received the Selective Urban Scholars Award, Alexandra is a former Abodad Justice Fellow, Juvenation Fellow, Moisha House resident, seventh and ninth grade teacher, instructor at the Reconstructionist Rabbinical College, and Teach for America director. Today, Alexandra is the president of Continued Learning Group, LLC, where she leads diversity, equity, and inclusion audits for nonprofit organizations and small businesses. In her free time, Alexandra serves on the board of Chicago Yivo Society, Mishkan, writes poetry, spins yarn, and spends time with her baby girl. Welcome, Alexandra. I'm so happy that you're here. Thank you again for joining us today. I'm particularly excited for this conversation because I really do feel like I'm talking to a sister. And I say that because even though you and I have never met, the fact that we're both Jewish women who are fabulously rooted in our Peruvian identities and Quechua identities means so much to me. And I think it means so much for so many people whose identities don't necessarily ever fit a particular mold. So talking to you makes me feel really seen and it gives me the opportunity to see you. So it's one of those beautiful mirror moments and I'm just so thankful. Now, as we get started, I'd love to give you the opportunity to expand a little bit on the bio I just read out regarding the identities that root you and ask you to also bring us in to discovering a little bit more about not just your roots, but the the roots or the routes that your families have taken to get you to where you are today. You asking me about my roots and my routes is, is kind of a dream that you have a whole podcast connected to people talking about their roots and their routes, because these are things that I think so much about. Um, and uh, I love making sense of, and I try to make as much sense as I can. So I'll start by saying that I feel very grounded in my Ashkenazi heritage. I'm grounded in my Peruvian heritage. I'm grounded in my identity as a Latina, as a Jewish woman. I'm grounded in my Quechua heritage and similar to my Yiddish heritage, my Ashkenazi heritage. Those were things that I had to search for and and look deeper uh, to, to, to come to the surface. And I'd love to talk about that as well. And I am a product of a lot of different stories, two, two totally different lands coming together and meeting in, in Los Angeles. I have family from Uchitsa in Europe who left Europe because of the pogroms and the anti-Semitism to come to the United States. My last name is Corwin. My grandparents changed it from Cohen to Corwin. Um, my family in Peru, there was movement there too. First coming from Juan Cabalica, all in search for education, for a better life. And that's something that I love so much about the two different sides of my family is that although the stories of migration are really different and really unique, it was to escape racism, to escape anti-Semitism, oppression, and to, to find a better life. Thank you, Alexandra. I really appreciate you with such vulnerability opening up and letting us into your life. 
And one of the things you said in the beginning of your introduction was that you identifying so strongly with both your Ashkenazi and Quechua identities was a journey and that you wanted to speak more about it. So let's just go into it. Tell us a little bit more about what that journey has been like. I want to think of myself when I was 10 years old. I had no idea that my Bubby's first language was Yiddish, and I had no idea that my abuelita's first language was Quechua. But as I got older and become, became more interested in family history, looking through old boxes, finding letters in a language that wasn't Hebrew, but pretty close to it, I learned so much more about my Ashkenazi heritage and what that actually meant. And yeah, I just dove deep into understanding more, studying a bit of Yiddish, taking Yiddish, learning Yiddish, going through old letters, trans, getting them translated, learning, uh, reading Yiddish literature. Whenever I hear something negative or something bad luck, I was taught to spit three times. Um, I thought maybe that was just me or my family. I never thought more about it, but I learned that that is from Ashkenazi culture and for the evil eye and so many little things like that about myself that I do, I, ha I had no idea was connected a part of a bigger story. And that's similar with Quechua, my abuelita, uh, an indigenous Peruvian woman, someone who I really look up to and is just an amazing person, an amazing woman and so, so strong. She, her native language was Quechua learning more about my indigenous heritage in that way has been really exciting and learning some words in Quechua, talking to her with Quechua. My late great aunt Peppy, she, her first language was Yiddish. When I started learning Yiddish, I would speak to her a little bit in Yiddish, um, speaking to my abuelita a little bit in Quechua and the memories of their childhoods and so many beautiful things would just come flooding in. And that language being a vehicle to it was something that was so exciting to me. And I saw that symmetry on, on both sides of my family. I think that's so beautiful. And I'm just, I'm listening to everything you're saying, and I'm just really appreciating the journey that you personally decided to go on, how you've prioritized reclaiming both your Ashkenazi and your Quechua roots. And I'm thinking even more so when it comes to the Ashkenazi we're talking about a community that is so wide. The umbrella of Ashkenazim is just endless. And somehow in the United States, we've flattened it so terribly that we assume that all communities that reign from a Central European or Eastern European who would identify as Ashkenazi are the same. And in just hearing you talk about your particular experience, I'm, I'm just understanding. And I'm, I'm certain that you've come up with things that are so unique and so special to your family, to your Bubby's experience. And just thinking a little bit about Ushitsia in, in Ukraine, where your family is from, and how their particular experiences might have been different than another person's family in present-day Hungary or Romania or Lithuania. And it's so important that we recognize these distinct nuances that make our history so rich and so special. Definitely. And I, in my early 20s, I would, I would be startled and confused when I um, heard Ashkenazi being used as a placeholder for white. I'm not white and I am Ashkenazi and it's not a placeholder for white. As you said, Ashkenazi can encompass so many different beautiful identities and combinations within that ethnic heritage. It's certainly not a placeholder 
amen to that. And I think you're right. I think, and I want to bring it into context. And I think it's that in the United States, most people who identify as Ashkenazi Jews do present as white. And so the way in which they interact with the world, they're perceived as white. But we also know that a lot of members from our enormous Jews of color community are also Ashkenazi. And just this August, the Beyond the Count study was released, a study commissioned by the Jews of Color Initiative. And in that study, we found that a large number of respondents also identified as Ashkenazi, meaning that you can be a Jew of color and Ashkenazi. Shouldn't be a surprise, but somehow it felt pretty mind-blowing for a lot of people who had been relating Ashkenazi identity to whiteness. And so it's important that we remember this because whenever it is that we want to talk about Ashkenazi culture, Ashkenazi community, it's important that we don't assume that we're only speaking to white folks or that we're only speaking about white folks because doing so also erases the experience of many, many Jews of color who, in addition to numerous identities they may have, Ashkenazi is one of them. Now, I'd love to switch gears for a bit. So you and I have previously spoken about the relationship that you have with both your abuelita and your bubby, in other words, your grandmothers. And I'd love for you to bring into the space some understanding as to who they were and why it is that they are so special to you. So my grandmother, my late grandmother, Frances, she was a woman who was born in 1918 in New York came to Chicago, came from um, parents who fled Uchitsa because of pogroms, and she became a lawyer in the 40s. There was a time where she shared that she knew every single woman lawyer in Chicago, and her story, I mean, she faced a lot of anti-Semitism, sexism. She had a lot of unique experiences as an Ashkenazi woman in the 30s and 40s. She led a remarkable life, dedicating her whole life to a legal aid and working with women who were survivors of domestic violence. And so she, she led an incredible life, someone I really looked up to and was really proud of. My abuelita, she was born in a province of Huancavelica to an, an indigenous woman, my great-great-grandmother Aurelia, speaking Quechua. And to, to have her experiences and her identities, um, I, I can't speak for her, but uh, also in the 30s and 40s, she had her own set of challenges. My grandmothers met probably in their 70s and 80s, having so many years of experiences, but their children fell in love and um, it brought them together. My grandmother, um, although they're both bilingual and they didn't speak each other's language. Right. And so my abuelita spoke Spanish. My grandmother, Francis, Bubby spoke English, but they had so much love for one another. My abuelita is still alive. I was just talking to her yesterday, telling her I'm going to be on this podcast. Can I talk a little bit about your story? And she mentioned Grandma Francis. Every time we talk, she meant she mentions my Bubby Francis, how much they loved each other and how much they connected. And for me, that was always a very strong example that love doesn't have a container of language. It doesn't have a container of being the, the same exact. I mean, these were two totally different people, but love is a language 
within it within itself and that the care that they had for each other and how they happened to be so close to each other yet not speak the same language and me translating for them and just being a container for that love has been a really uh, monumental foundation for me to see that. Mm. I can't stop smiling. It's, it's really beautiful the way you talk about both of your grandmothers and how you remember them with love and, and the relationship that they had with one another feels so special. Even as you said, given the fact that they didn't speak the same language, which as you alluded to, goes to show that when it comes to love, when it comes to, to truly wanting to understand another person, you don't just rely on language. And I think it's just spectacular to imagine how the relationship they had with one another influenced you. Thank you. And now, now that you've asked this and I'm thinking more about it, the comment that they both echoed, it's the same comment over the years, which is, the other woman, your other grandmother, your, your bubby or your abuelita never judged me for who I am or, 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 or what I was or how I came to the table. They stood in vulnerability and knew they were in a safe place without judgment, which can be hard across racial, religious lines. But that's something that they, that they shared with me. Mm. That's actually reminding me in Quechua, there is a saying, munaiki. And munaiki means, I love you, you're beautiful, come as you are. Meaning there is no expectation for someone to be a certain something or to have achieved a certain amount of anything, but rather there is acceptance of loving someone and loving them because they're worthy just as they are. And just hearing you talk about both of your grandmothers, I'm hearing that particular value come to light. I love that too, because it also goes away from a framework of putting people's value or worth on what they're producing or what they're making and just being exactly who they are. And thinking about my grandmother to my, uh, my abuelita, you know, around uh, 10 years ago, I really started my interest, what my indigenous heritage means, means to me and what it could mean. And so that's been a journey over the past several years, but a journey that has been very beautiful for me since I've met a teacher I speak with every other week. He has taught me so much about, I, I come and I ask him questions and he teaches me so much about myself. He, I asked him to translate Quechua songs that my great aunt Tia Julia used to sing so that I could learn how to sing them. And I know what that meant. He also, we were also reading books together, Deep Rivers, to learn really about the the indigenous experience in the 30s and 40s where my grandmother, or my abuelita, was raised. And it's been a really beautiful connection. I've learned so much about myself. It's pretty remarkable how much energy and love you've put into learning about yourself because it's easy, especially in the US, to not have to think about things that make you or take you farther away from the norm. And so I'm listening to the exploration that you've taken with your Ashkenazi Yiddish identities and also how you just talked right now about over the last couple of years, the effort you've put into reclaiming your indigenous Quechua identity. Because it's not easy. We don't we don't really learn to do that in most Latin American countries. Um, for Especially in Peru, we have such a large indigenous community. And most of us that are Peruvian are actually mestizo, are mixed. And yet we don't necessarily have access or tools to discover what that really means. 
I really commend your energy. And this is another one of those reasons why I say, I feel like I'm, I'm talking to a sister and I, and I, I really appreciate that feeling so, so much. So this journey that you've taken, it makes me wonder about your upbringing. Now, I know that you grew up in a suburb of Chicago and that you grew up in a community that was pretty homogenous. And so I'm curious if you could share with us what your experience was like as someone who was growing up with with multicultural identities. Did you feel as if you had a place to explore your multiculturalism? Did you have access to Jewish community, to Latinx community? Just so curious, what was your experience? Being in a space where I was one of two or three Jews in the grade, a grade of like 80 or 90, me and another person being Latina, I really was at the front, (laughs) in the middle of overlap of unique identities that other people didn't share. Being in that environment had me think even more about what these identities meant. I would say that that's one aspect. Being in Chicago, my mother had a lot of Peruvian friends and we had the Peruvian Independence Day every summer and being in, and and also, although my unique place I lived, there weren't a lot of Jews at the school I went to, there were a lot of Jews in the neighboring suburbs and I went to a really robust, awesome synagogue growing up and was around Jewish life. And so I feel fortunate that I was able to be raised with the the social environment of uh, of both my parents. Awesome. No, that's really great to hear. So was there ever an opportunity in which you felt embarrassed of one of your identities or where you felt like you wanted to let go of one of your identities? And if so, how did you face that situation with your family? The first thought that comes to my head is I came home from school one day and I said, mom, I don't want you to speak Spanish to me anymore at school. I don't want you to speak it to me anymore. I don't want to be different than any of the other kids. Please, please stop. Okay. Solo inglés. Okay. My mom was clearly hurt and tried to figure out what, what do I do? What is this about? Mind you, I was in a, probably the one of two uh, Latino Latinx kids in my grade in kindergarten. And what my mother did is that she went to the other mother of, um, of my peer who was Latino. And she said, what do we do? My daughter shared this. Is your son saying this too? And they teamed up together and they went to the kindergarten teacher and said, Hey, we want to come in and we want to teach a Spanish class every day and sing songs or every week and show all the kids the beauty of Spanish. And so they did that. Before you knew it, I was coming home and saying, mom, all the kids are talking about how cool Spanish is. Yes, like you can keep speaking it to me. (laughs) Your mom is smart. That is a smart move. I I love that you acknowledge that she was likely hurt because she probably was. I can only imagine if there's something that you or your child is fully rejecting that is just entirely yours. It doesn't, it must not feel good. So I love how your mom went about it and how she listened to what you were saying and found a way in which to make it fun and make it something that added to your life and added to your social experience as a, as a student and as a kid. That's a great tip for anybody who's listening. I'm, I'm, I'm fascinated. And I think that there's many other good tips out there. So if you have them, share them with our community. 
And I think this is a perfect segue into who you are as an educator, because I know that you've spent much of your career exploring the power and the impact of supporting young children develop a strong ethnic and racial identity, and also creating experiences in the classroom that are culturally relevant and culturally sustaining. So based on what you know, why does this matter? Why is it important that kids develop a strong sense of ethnic and racial identity? And what happens if they don't? Building up a kid's racial and ethnic identity, whether that's through so many manifestations, language, food, culture, is really a way to make them feel feel good. And so many other factors, like social, emotional health, grades, all these things. But it's not always a story that's, okay, great. I was happy for a day, moving on, right? There were many moments growing up that I would think like, what what does this mean? What does my identity mean um, in this particular space? If kids don't have a strong ethnic and racial identity, it really negatively impacts their social emotional health, grades, their adjustment, especially for people of color, BIPOC children. They're going to hear things they're going to experience racism. What can we do? That resilience and building that ethnic racial identity, uh, the studies show that that's, that's, a, that's, a bit, that's a bit of a guard so that when things that are tough that are experienced, we have, we have this strong foundation to respond to that, those difficult moments. And so if someone's listening to this and they're like, oh my goodness, these are overlaps that I have expertise in or experience in, please reach out to me because I don't want to do this work alone. Um, and, I, and I want to do this labor of love and, and community. Wonderful. Thank you so much for that. And, and I'm curious because I'm sure a lot of people say, well, ethnic and racial identity, does this mean that it only applies to young kids of color? What do you say to someone who asks you that? Is this is, is developing a strong ethnic and racial identity only something that matters if you're a kid of color? Ethnic racial identity isn't something that's only for, for BIPOC folks, for white folks as well. And so that's something that I'm really interested in and excited to explore. I've done this in the, in the public school world, in the secular education world. There's a lot going on there, a lot of movement, a lot of conversation. I'm really excited about bridging this into our Jewish education system and being innovative and creative in how we can do that. Well, I am supporting you in that venture. And I think just kind of circling back to what we were talking about before, I think this is a real, a great response to how we flattened past Ashkenazi culture. And so we're thinking about Jewish identity. And in the United States, we know that the majority of people who identify as Jewish do identify as Ashkenazi, but we've flattened it so much that we've kind of made it all seem homogenous in that sense. But what would it look like to give each person the opportunity to explore where it was particularly that their families came from. And in doing so, we make room for other folks who are Sephardi, Mizrahi, who are Beta Israel, Bene Israel from different parts of the world to not have their exploration of their own ethnic and racial identity be so exoticized, be something that only non-normative Jews do. So I think that this is something, a practice that if we all do, we can really center that Judaism is a multicultural community and that we should all be doing this work. So our time has come to a close, which is awful. (laughs) Uh, But before we go, I'd love to give you the opportunity to say a little bit of something in Spanish. Me mencionaste anteriormente que tal vez te interesaría decirle algo a tu abuelita. 
Si es que quieres, por favor, el micrófono es tuyo. Mi español no es perfecto, um, pero no voy a pensar mucho en eso. Mi familia en Perú siempre está en mi corazón, viviendo en mi corazón. Um, y siempre estoy pensando en, en mi abuelita. Es algo muy, muy triste que no, no vivimos juntos, pero ella, si estás escuchando, Carmen, abuelita, te quiero mucho, mucho, mucho y gracias por todo tu amor y, y estoy aquí y siempre estoy pensando en ti, mi abuelita tan preciosa. Mm, qué linda, qué linda tu abuelita. It's so beautiful the way you talk to your grandma and I just appreciate you kind of circling you back to the way in which we started, which is talking about these wise women that really help ground you. So Alexandra, thank you so much for being with us today. It's been a pleasure to get to know you more, to hear about the power of the relationships that have formed who you are today, and to hear about your own expertise and your vision for creating more culturally sustaining spaces for everyone. Thank you. Gracias, Alexandra. Your story is a reminder that no two Latin Jewish stories are alike. And therefore, it is important that we continue to elevate as many Latin Jewish stories as possible. To all of our listeners, thank you for your love and encouragement. We are thrilled to be back for a second season, and we wouldn't have been able to do this without your support. New episodes will be released every Friday from October 1st through December 17th. For more information, please visit jutina.org. Until next time, ciao!